If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 13. We'll be looking at Psalm 145 as well later on, um, just to give you a heads up. When we remember the events that this week represents, we hear the following. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is what the crowd shouted as Jesus entered Jerusalem on the day we know today as Palm Sunday. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus cried on the cross. And then later, before his death, into your hands I commit my spirit. So familiar words to us, two of the seven words from the cross. But do we remember or do we even know that these are direct quotes from the book of Psalms? The first is from Psalm 118. The second is from the opening line of Psalm 21. The third is from Psalm 31. Actually, I think the second one is from Psalm 22. These words come from the Psalms, which, as we have been seeing the past two months, train us to pray. But these examples from the last week of Jesus before he was put to death may well cause us to ask, what is the purpose what is the end? What is the telos of prayer? What is the goal of prayer? What is the goal at which the Psalms arrive after going through pain and doubt and trouble? Occasionally sunny countryside, but generally it seems to be gloom and doom. Well, the goal ultimately is praise. In fact, the Hebrew title for the book we call Psalms is the book of praises. Uh, Psalms is the English version of the Greek word salmoi, which means songs. Um, I actually think if the book of Psalms was called the book of praises, it might catch our attention a bit more because it would seem to be highly inaccurate. The Psalms, a book of praises, many if not most are complaints. They are calls for help by hurting and helpless individuals and people. One of the great scholars on the book of Psalms says, the prayer of complaint is the backbone of the Psalter. So why would you call it the book of praises? Is this false advertising? Is this sort of a bait and switch, try to get you involved, and, uh, and then, then you find out that it's actually not what you thought it would be? Something attractive, praises, is replaced by pain and doubt and trouble? Doesn't that title, in fact, misrepresent what the entire book is about? Somehow presenting it as being more pleasant than it really is. As I hope has become clear in this series, the book of Psalms, as it trains us to pray, causes us, it forces us to deal with reality. The reality of our world and our lives at a depth and with an honesty that I think if we could, we would completely avoid. Do we really want to feel this deeply? Do we want to feel as the psalmist do? If we knew that prayer would take us to such places, would we have ever signed on to begin a life of prayer? One could argue that to call this a book of praises is not statistically accurate, but it is accurate all the same. It is accurate because it describes the purpose of prayer, the end of prayer, 
the finished product. All prayer, if it goes far enough where it should go, becomes praise. Any prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry or fearful the experience that is involved, in the Psalms it ends up in praise. It doesn't always get there easily or quickly, and it may in fact take a lifetime. But the end is always praise. Always. One could argue that to call the Psalms the book of praises is the only accurate title that we should have for this book because it is the goal, it is the destination for which we began this journey in a life of prayer. It is the end which shapes how we are now. This may sound counterintuitive, but the end of things, in fact, shapes our lives more than the beginning. Think of when you were a kid and what I want to be when I grow up. That's a future event. Shapes what I do and what I want to do now. Certainly shapes you more than one would argue your genetic code at conception. Aristotle said that it is not first cause, you know, that thing that gets us going, but the final cause, that which pulls us to the end, that has the greatest effect. It is ultimately decisive in our lives. We are unfinished. We're unfinished creatures. And we're looking to be finished. And so we're going on a journey and we're headed in a particular direction. For human beings, the future is, in fact, the most creative. It is the most essential aspect of our lives. Now, many people see the Bible as primarily past. And certainly the events that, have, that are written about occurred in the past. But in reality, only the first two chapters describe our beginnings. And everything after Genesis 2 describes a narrative which is headed in a particular direction. It is, in fact, the future encroaching on the present. It is in prayer that we look to the future. Think about that. It is in prayer that we look to the future. All prayers are, by definition, directed to God. And they bring us into the presence of God. And as we read in the last psalm of the book of Psalms, this is where everything that has breath praises the Lord. There are hints of this this reality of praise being the end of prayer. There are hints of this throughout the book of Psalms. That sometimes in the midst of a terrible lament, without any transition, defying all logic, suddenly there is praise. Psalm 13 is a very good example of this. Listen, if you would, as I read. For the director of music, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I, will, I have triumphed over him, or I have overcome him, and my, foe will, my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. In the first two verses of the psalm, David asks, 
he puts five hard questions to God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Perhaps the last question, the fifth question, is not one you have asked God. But I think we can all relate to the others. Three of them particularly that deal with how long. How long, O Lord? And this is followed by three petitions. Look on me, answer me, or answer, O Lord my God, give light to my eyes. And then these three petitions are followed by three, a threefold cry of desperation. Or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. This psalm up to verse number six, up to verse number four, is pure lament. There is no evidence whatsoever that David's questions were ever answered. There, is, there are no signs that his petitions, in fact, are going to be granted. There are no hints that the desperate conditions turn into anything less desperate. And yet, we come to verses 5 and 6. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. Just a note here, the NIV has um, differs from all other English translations here, which is quite remarkable, because it has trust in verse number 5 in the present tense, when in reality it is the past tense. That is, I have trusted in your unfailing love. It is the first verb of these two verses. The last verb is, he has been good to me. The ESV has, says, he has dealt bountifully with me. That is their completed actions. I have trusted, the Lord has been good to me. Then why do we have the first four verses? There's no experience that is given to validate these statements. In fact, one would say that the first five questions first five petitions would seem to indicate that David has not trusted God. Because if he trusted God, why is he asking these questions? And the three petitions would seem to indicate that the Lord has not dealt bountifully with David. That's why he's praying Psalm 13. So where has God been good? Or David has trusted? How? Why? And yet in the midst of this psalm, Praise erupts. It springs forth. And for a moment, this prayer, which is a lament, which cries out to God, is in touch with the purpose of prayer, its final end, and that is praise. This kind of thing happens all the time when God's people pray. Praise when we least expect it. In places we would never guess, we would never expect to find it and it springs forth, it erupts. It may sound counterintuitive, and I suppose on some level it is. But we're talking about prayer. And remember that prayer is a response to someone who began the conversation. And it all is headed in a particular direction, that is praise. That is where we are headed if we continue in prayer. That's a big if, because oftentimes... We sort of throw our hands up and cry out as in the beginning of Psalm 13 and then we walk away. But there's a conversation going on and we need to continue to speak. We don't simply say our piece and walk away. 
the goal of praise is embedded in the very nature of prayer is, I think, epitomized in Psalm 145. And that's what I'd like you to look at now, if you would. Psalm 145. Psalm 145 is given the title, A Psalm of Praise. It is the only psalm to be given this title. I think that's worth noting. It is an acrostic poem. That is, each uh, stanza begins with the letter of the alphabet in order. But it is also an anthology. Now, we have other acrostic uh, psalms. Um, Psalm 9, 10, 25, 34, 37, 111, 112. But I think everyone remembers 119, where you have eight verses that all begin with Alif. And then it goes on down through the Hebrew alphabet. But Psalm 145 is different. Because it is, in fact, a collection from the previous 144 psalms. These are direct or indirect quotes from what we've seen earlier in the book of Psalms. Each of the entries is that of praise. There's no lament here. There's no complaint. There's no confession of sin. There's no perplexity. How long, O Lord? This is pure praise. Follow along, if you would, as I read it. A psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They will tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All you have made will praise you, O Lord. Your saints will extol you. They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will sing in, will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. This is a psalm of praise. And what comes after Psalm 145? Well, 146, 147, 148, 149, 150. 
five psalms of praise. They all begin with praise the Lord, which is hallelujah. Uh, what we know it as. And each psalm seems to be more exuberant than the others. There are other hallelujah psalms, uh, 111, 112, 113, that begin with praise the Lord. Um, but these last five are, if you wish, to sort of pound home the reality that praise is the end of prayer. We come to the end of the book and in both senses, what is the purpose, what is the telos of prayer, what is the end of the book of praises, it is praise. The book that trains us how to pray wants us to praise God. You will remember that the book of Psalms is divided into five books that match the five books of the law, the Pentateuch. And at the end of each one is a statement of praise. And let me read quickly to you. Psalm 41. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. That's the end of book one. The end of book two, Psalm 72. Praise be to his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Psalm 89, the end of book three. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Then the end of book four is a bit different. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. And then we come to the end of Psalms, in both senses. Psalm 150, verse 6. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. This psalm, Psalm 150, begins and ends with hallelujah, with praise the Lord. And in Psalm 150, we find it 13 times. It's only six verses, and we find it 13 times. I mentioned a bit ago that the final first psalms of the book are hallelujah. The first five, uh, final five are hallelujah. Five hallelujah psalms, one for each book. There are five books, and there are five hallelujah psalms at the end. No matter how much we suffer, no matter our doubts, no matter how many times we have asked in desperation or in doubt, how long, O oh Lord, prayer finally develops into praise. It is the consummating prayer. This is not to suggest that praise is the only valid form or the superior form of prayer. But all prayer, if it is pursued long enough, will in fact end in praise. As I said earlier, it may take a lifetime. It may not be like Psalm 13. Whenever I think of Psalm 13, I have to mention this. Uh, we used to have a, a man here in our church, Dan DePue, who would preach uh, when I was going through graduate school. He would help um, bear the burden of preaching. And he preached once on Psalm 13. And for him, it was a very difficult time in his life. Uh, he is trying to find work. He had three kids and... Um, I think it was after after this event had happened that he preached on Psalm 13. He was held up at a convenience store in the valley and told to lay down on the floor. The guy had a gun and he didn't know if he would survive. And so Psalm 13 was very real to him. But then there is praise. Well, for some people it doesn't happen that quickly. For some it may take years the structure of the individual psalms, of each of the five books of the psalms and of the book as a whole, tell us that there are in fact no shortcuts. 
I think we would like Psalm 13 to be the way things are, that we can say, how long, how long, I'm really desperate, and then praise the Lord, everything is wonderful. But in reality, there are no shortcuts. And the way that the book is arranged, where you have praise the Lord, hallelujah, at the end of the book, the longest book in the Bible, I think this, in fact, should tell us that it is a long journey. That, in fact, we should know that it takes time. I think the men who arranged this gave great thought to the way they arranged it, and they put the praises at the very end so that we would know that is the end of prayer, but also sometimes the journey is quite long before we get to that place. So the design conclusion for the Psalms is not uh, simply that praise is the end of prayer. That is, that is, I think, part of the purpose, but also that it may take a while. It may take decades before we get to the hallelujahs. Not every one of our prayers is capped off with praise. But a praying life ultimately will end in praise. If we persist in prayer, laughing and crying, doubting and believing, struggling and dancing, and then struggling again, we will surely end up at Psalm 150. And if you would turn there, please. It's the last psalm in the book of Psalms. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. In this series, we've seen that the Psalms teach us how to pray, to respond to God who begins the conversation, to use the appropriate language in prayer, to recognize the place of story or narrative, our experiences in prayer, to understand the place of rhythm in prayer. And we saw this when we looked at the evening and the morning as we see in creation to accept the place of creation metaphors in prayer. I don't know if you caught it as I was reading Psalm 145, how often it speaks of God as the one who made these things. He is the one who made the earth. And then, as troubling as it may be, the Psalms teach us how to pray our hate. And as we saw last Sunday, the Psalms teach us to pray with memory, to remember the, the shape of creation, that we are made in the image of God, and along with the rest of creation, proclaim to be good. But then also we are to remember our implication in sin. That sin is the reality of our life. It coexists with the fact that we are made in the image of God. We may want to pretend that we are better than we are. We may deny that we've done something wrong. But the Psalms pray us into a detailed awareness of our condition and our sinfulness. But then also we are to remember the country of salvation. As Eugene Peterson put it, if you wish that being made in the image of God is a North Pole 
and our sins of the South Pole and everything in between is the country of salvation. It is vast. It is the vast country of salvation. It's not momentary. It's not occasional. It's just not some moments when we feel particularly good. It is total and comprehensive. And as David tells us in Psalm 103, forget not all his benefits. But we tend to forget because the project's not finished. We know we're not in, we, we know we are incomplete, that we're not finished. And we tend to focus more on our own efforts, which means our own failures, rather than recognizing that God, in fact, has been working. We are living in the vast country of God's salvation. Prayer develops our memory with God. And the Psalms train our memories. As I said at the beginning of the sermon today, this is the week that we remember the words in a very powerful way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the night before this happened, Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples. We are told in Matthew's account, as well as in Mark's, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What hymn did they sing? Well, the practice was to sing psalms, and particularly at Passover, to sing psalms 113 to 118, known as the halal psalms or the praise psalms. Here they are before Psalm 119, and even before the end of the book. Listen, if you would, as I read just a portion of Psalm 116. This is what they are singing. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. How can I repay the Lord for all his goodness to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. O Lord, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have freed me from my chains. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. And then the psalm ends with, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. But between Psalm 116 and Psalm 22 comes betrayal, denial, false accusers, beatings, scourging, crucifixion, death, the grave. As we know, and we will remember next Sunday, this is not the end of the story. It ends in praise. And if you look at the very end of Luke's gospel, then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed there continually at the temple, praising God. That's where it all goes. That's where it's all headed. The journey of faith, the journey of prayer is headed toward praise. If by God's grace we would persevere through dark times, through really dark times, but also through times in which things are good and we tend to forget. By God's grace, may we remain faithful in prayer and it lead us to praise. Let's pray together. Father, I, I suspect that we would rather pray our own way. We'd rather be extemporaneous and just say things the way we want to say them. 
the idea that someone else would teach us to pray at times bothers us, but not when we are in trouble, when we cry out to you in desperation. I thank you that you have not left us alone. You have included an entire book to teach us, to train us how to pray. And we see that its purpose is ultimately that we would praise you, we would thank you, we would worship you for all you have done. In good times, in bad times, may we by your grace remain faithful in prayer. And by your spirit, may it lead us to praise. To say praise the Lord, to say hallelujah, and to thank you. Again, we thank you for this wonderful day in which we remember Jesus entering Jerusalem. And yet in the coming days, we will also remember his suffering. Betrayed by a disciple, denied by his closest disciple. Falsely accused. Physically tortured. And ultimately crucified. Help us to remember that there is Easter. But before Easter, there is Good Friday, the darkest of days. And may we trust you. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.